Zaha used to arrive with the taxi in the office and then she would go upstairs and suddenly you would hear a lot of creative noise and then she would bang the door and leave again. <laughs> Welcome to Design Pod with me, Hamish Kilburn. And me, Harriet Ford. Design Pod is the contemporary voice for all interior designers and architects on the go. The topics and personalities amplified on the podcast will give texture and perspective on the key issues that face modern A&D professionals as briefs and deadlines become much more challenging. But it's also a safe space, if you like, for anyone who's interested in architecture and design. Harriet and I have been working on this podcast concept for what genuinely feels like forever, and we've overcome many challenges to get to this point. For the time being, due to COVID-19, we're recording these episodes remotely. However, we will get to the point really soon, we hope, when we are recording each episode together in person, which was always the plan. And until then, I will be leading the interviews with our special guests and we'll be catching up with Harriet in each and every episode. So welcome to episode two of Design Pod, where today we're focusing our attention on architecture beyond boundaries. But first, Harriet, I think it's only fair that we let our listeners in on the realities of recording a podcast in lockdown. Tell us a little bit more about the location you're in right now and the setting. Well, Hamish, it is a new take on duvet day. Instead of using a duvet to escape from the morning after the night before, I'm currently sitting in my husband's study full of boxes uh, from a job that hasn't delivered, should have delivered before Christmas, the duvet and a rather clunky setup of cameras, uh, computers, headphones and iPhones, God knows what else, but hopefully it's working. This podcast series is sponsored by Bathroom Brands Group, which includes established, trusted and regularly specified bathroom brands such as Crosswater, Burlington, Britain and Clearwater. Harriet, today we're, we're talking about architecture beyond boundaries. It's a big, big topic. And in order to do so, we thought it was only right to look at one design firm, and that is Zaha Hadid Architects. To really understand where they are now, you have to look back at Zaha Hadid herself. What a pioneer she was in architecture. Mm, it's an incredible legacy. And, uh, and I'm so excited that you've, you've secured this guest and that we're going to be learning more about, you know, after the sad passing of Zaha Hadid, what, what the company does next, basically. What, what is the future for the company and the, all the very talented architects that are working there? Yeah, and you know, so, so for those um, listeners who, who are not aware of um, Zaha's work, Zaha Hadid was a pioneering visionary, really, in the 21st century um, architecture. And in each of her projects, she's challenged conventions in such an interesting way. Um, very sadly, she she passed away in 2016. And you know, what we really wanted to to learn in this episode was how the studios um, coped with that and sort of maintained her legacy. Um, Harriet Zaha was 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 infamous for so many reasons, and one of which is is her champion championing diversity in design in a, in a time where the industry was was heavily influenced, and it is now also, um, and it's dominated by by men really. Um, how did she break those boundaries? I think really by being an incredibly strong character, you can't go into that sort of scenario, um, as you say, heavily male dominated um, without making making a statement and, um, you know, really um, shouting, shouting what you're about. And I think that is the way that she managed to forge the path that allowed her to do all the incredible work that she did. 
And for so many um, designers and architects, young designers and architects, um, I genuinely do feel as if Zaha Hadid is a, a is a massive influence on on the future of design through through like you know, the way in which she really broke boundaries. How did she break boundaries, in your opinion? Well, I mean, you just have to look at the buildings to see that, you know, structurally, how do they stand up? You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's um, you know, I'm sure her structural, the structural engineers that worked with her um, were, were pushed to their very edge. And, um, you know, she was very lucky in that she got, she was commissioned to do a lot of very high profile buildings, um, which, you know, the, the, the general public get to see. And so her name became synonymous with, these orga- wonderful organic shapes, um, which uh, defied gravity in, in many many cases, but they 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 were you know they were realised, which is which is wonderful. It's pretty undeniable that, that the work that comes out of that studio is incredible. But I mean, you yourself said um, when we were preparing for this podcast that it's somewhat of a nightmare for interior designers because of the irregularity behind the architecture and, and really to create an interior design scheme that complements that is, is really challenging. From an interior designer's perspective, if you were working on a Zaha Hadid Architects project, where would you start? Well, I, absolutely. We had this conversation because because of one of the projects that they'd recently completed, which inclu- they, where they included the interiors. And obviously, once you're in control of the whole exterior interior, um, you know, junction, you can you can have a much better, clearer sort of concept that runs all the way through. And um, you know, one of the um, aspects of this project was that um, <clears throat> excuse me was that that none of the walls were put straight. So, you know, you really have to start thinking again about how you're um, going to start doing your layouts and how your project's going to um, meet this incredible um, shell that you've been given. And I would say that probably all interior designers that work with Zaha Hadid have had to forge a very close relationship with them and also have a very um, a very uh, experimental and forward-thinking client who is willing to go that extra mile because nothing Nothing would be standard, everything would be bespoke. And uh, from that point of view, it probably challenged the budget quite a lot. Absolutely. So I think it's definitely about time to to welcome our our guest speaker for for today's um, episode. This episode's special guest is Christos Passas, who joined Zaha Hadid Architects in 1998 as a senior designer. 23 years later, he is now the director of the studio, and his most recent work includes the Opus, which stands majestically in Dubai and shelters the Media International's latest hotel. He is the mastermind behind the studio's major projects, and he is here to give us a deeper understanding of the studio and how time and time again, it manages to broaden the parameters of architecture and boundaries. So welcome Christos Passas. Um, You are, last year, you were crowned Architect of the Year at the Britlist Awards, and you're the director of Zaha Hadid Architects. I think it's probably fitting to start with um, just talking us through your career journey up to date because you've been at Zaha Hadid Architects which must have felt like forever really. Uh, hi Amish, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you as well today. Um, yeah, indeed, it's been, a, it's been a long journey. I actually um, uh, was uh, uh, reminded that uh, a couple of days ago I had my 23rd year running in the company which is uh, quite an achievement in itself and uh, I remember I remember the first day I I arrived at the office um, on uh, in uh, 
yeah, long time ago now. And uh, we we started working on this project. At that time, we had uh, a restaurant called Isola that was supposed to go into, um, it was actually in Kensington, South Kensington for, for, a, for a restaurateur client. And, um, you know, we ended up working until 6 a.m., on my first day at work so it was it was wow. quite an experience a lot of passion a lot of a lot of creativity a lot of failure along the way you know trying to get things right and not quite making it especially at that time when the office wasn't so world renowned it was a small studio and uh, you know of course we were still learning the tricks of the trade learning how to build how to deal with clients and and uh, and their requirements and you know it did it did uh, take us through uh, quite uh, quite a few hoops you know but but in the end i think um, i think we've come a long way and um, you know 23 years later now we see the company is totally changed is much more you know uh, much bigger lots of lots of more stuff more diversity uh, more talent uh, inside the company and generally a kind of a still maintains a very good spirit Amazing. And um, what what was it about Zaha Hadid Architects that that really sort of enticed you to work there? And more importantly, what made you stay for so long? Well, you know, um, I knew Zaha from when I was a student back in the mid nineties, um, when uh, I I stumbled upon one of her drawings for the Hong Kong Peak Hotel. Uh, that was a competition that she had won. Somebody pulled her drawings out of the bin and, and you know, um, it was a famous Japanese architect. And uh, he said, well, this is the scheme that we should award. And she became the, the winner. Of course, the scheme was very radical. It was meant to be sitting on the peak of Hong Kong mountain, uh, but it was not a vertical skyscraper. It, it was a horizontal skyscraper. So it was sticking out of the mountain horizontally. And, um, you know, very radical scheme. It was, people said it was unbuildable. I mean, you know, um, as they did for most of our projects in in the early days. And, and actually, I found it very um, seductive and very mesmerizing. Uh, the whole language, the whole kind of you know, the way the constructivism was was dealing with architectural form back then. And Zaha was one of the of the proponents. I think it was a very interesting uh, new way of looking at things. So that's what drew me to this. And then when we met at the AA a few years later, you know, I saw a, a, a woman who was strong and weathered and and she knew a lot about architecture. But, you know, her style sometimes was a bit casual and sometimes a bit strict. So, you know, in, in a way, uh, she was an interesting kind of a person to, to begin to, to feel how her reactions and how to converse with her. So, you know, um, and, uh, and um, I found that quite fascinating, especially because she was, she was one of those uh, characters who didn't want to be bounded by norms and and by dogmas but she she was always open to experimentation and and kind of trying things out so when i finished my studies at the aa i came to 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 the office they asked me to they asked me whether i wanted to come and and work here um and i said yes i came in we had a kind of a nice uh, chat um and uh, and at that time everybody in the office was like friends there wasn't a strong hierarchy there wasn't, uh, you know, anything 
other than a kind of a, a cooking pot where everything was boiling inside. Mm, like a camaraderie, you know? of course. Yes, yeah. yes. And uh, I was talking to one of our neighbors actually today um, in a meeting, and he goes, I remember the times when Zaha used to arrive with the taxi uh, in the office, and then she would go upstairs, and suddenly you would hear a lot of creative noise, and then she would bang the door and leave again. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, I was the guy driving the taxi back then, so I know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, what was Zaha like to work with on a day-to-day basis? You know, she was she was fun. I mean, I remember back when I first walked into the office, um, there was so much smoking going into the into the room that it was kind of surrounded by a cloud of of, <laughs> of smoke and tobacco, and uh, and uh, you know, um, it was it was it was very interesting. It was, she was she was a very good um, very good leader uh, in the sense that she led by example uh, rather than by direct mentorship, if you know what I mean. So seeing mm-hmm. how she worked and, and how she dealt with particular problems. She was very uncompromising, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and she had to also be by extent, very strong as a character as well, strong minded. I mean, you know, to be able to deal with some of the problems and also to, to maintain, you know, the face of the company as a, you know, even when we uh, admittedly, not have done so well in some in some occasions with projects and stuff so mm. and also she was she was operating at a time that was it was so male dominated um the, the industry it still is now to, to a certain extent so you have to be strong and you have to be um you know unapologetic in your opinions in order to um really sort of make a name for yourself and also to get your opinions heard which must have been challenging in itself um so Tell me a little bit more about how you've kept Zaha's legacy alive since 2016 and, and the studio moving forward. Well, um, as I was saying earlier, the idea of testing, experimentation, feeling your way through the field of what is architecture, and by field I mean uh, anything that has to do with the world of ideas, anything that has to do with the world of management, anything that has to do with the world of design production, anything that has to do with materiality, dealing with uh, all the actors within the process of making our architecture happen. Um, I think we've learned, you know, to develop experience uh, directly from, uh, from the engagement with it. So a lot of our experiences have always been very unique not that we don't learn, you know, from structured knowledge sources or, but there is no real curriculum in architecture. If you think about it, there are traditions, there are techniques, there are methods, but there is no A to B curriculum. So having the opportunity to work within a, a, um, um, an experimentation environment uh, where there is a lot of uh, research and development going constantly, that means that you build very unique experiences. And in that sense, the, exp- the experiences that the people in this company have are very exceptional in that sense and in that field. Of course, there is shared experiences with the whole industry, but there is also the unique experiences. So that's what I call the culture of the company. And I think in many ways to be able to 
retain that and to uh, to cultivate that, to transmit that knowledge and still not only transmit it because then you would be coming the A to B knowledge base for others. So you have to also let others do the job and experience it and, and fail where they have to so that they can accumulate knowledge in that way. And I think that's the way we are pushing these, these, uh, these, these, uh, you know, this heritage and this culture forward by maintaining the spirit of, of that company in this way. Nowadays, we have a lot of good people from the past as well. So they are good guides for, for the rest of the group to, uh, to get on with things. I feel just just naturally um, breaking the boundaries that, that the studio does. There, there's a lot of people out there that are kind of wanting you to fail um, as, as a studio and quite, you know, lo- looking forward to those moments where designs don't quite happen or they don't quite come together. Um, that's a lot of responsibility to take on, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Every project is like that and the whole office as a whole uh, entity is also like that. But I think, you know, if I if I look at you know, every one of the characters that we have in here, I think they're all, uh, you know, exceptional architects in one way or another. And and I think, uh, although we don't always uh, play ball uh, together, sometimes people kind of go off in their own directions and whatever, I think there is always a, a kind of a, a gravity back toward toward those initial values. So, yeah, and also yeah. I think you guys let the um, let the project speak for themselves a lot of the time, which um, I think is really admirable. Okay, so Christos, what what are you looking for um, in young architects and designers? So Harriet, our co-host, um, and I, we, we were talking ahead mm-hmm. of this um, this conversation, and we kind of want to know what you're what you're looking for when when it comes to young talents, bringing them into the studio. Yes, well, as I said, I think the the collaborative nature within our team is something that is something to be to be uh, uh, learned from and I think for for we've always uh, found a certain amount of of uh, pride and encouragement in being you know uh, a, a company that is very much proactive on an individual level there is a lot of internal entrepreneurialship and also self-organization happening so what I always say, um, is that we are not a corporate organization, but we are a, a professional organization and we're a creative professional organization. And I think that that is our character. So when, when it comes to younger people and a younger generation, I always look for people who um, are not afraid to work hard, not afraid to, to put themselves in a path of learning and self-discovery people who are able to, um, you know, test their ideas with others and see if they work or not, and really try to kind of prove their mint whilst they're inside inside the company, but do it in a good way, meaning do it for the good of others, do it for, for the good of yourself and not be kind of uh, awkward in those, in those situations where you have to share your achievements with, with everyone, basically. Okay, what I'm interested in now is to really understand how things operate and how things work at Zaha Hadid Architects um, when, when we're talking about um, on the boards and the drawing boards. So what's been the weirdest or, or most crazy render that hasn't made it through to, to becoming a project um, when you are faced with a brief that you've ever sort of come across at Zaha Hadid Architects? 
Well, we had things that didn't look like buildings at all. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> we had buildings that were floating in midair, and people were asking, wow. well, where are the columns? And we're trying to convince clients in a, in a design meeting that columns is not the important thing that we want to discuss today. <laughs> <laughs> or or when we had uh, kind of strange drawings, you know, architects kind of cut and dissect uh, a kind of a, an architectural model in different ways and they show sections, plans, elevations. <clears throat> and some of the drawings that we produce are really weird in that sense because when you, when you have a very three-dimensional object, you know, you try to cut it in 2D to explain in traditional, you know, kind of drawing terms what it is. And then suddenly you see all the kind of I'm not going to call it weird because I'm used to it now, but you know, the, uh, the strangeness of, of, of a form not yet seen. And I think, I think that's always uh, kind of interesting and exciting. A lot of people, you know, you don't, we don't recognize it as much, but when we show our drawings to some people, their first instinct is, well, how do we get this built? Right. And, and for us, the process of building is something that comes a little bit further down the line. You know, we know how to build, we know how to make things. We are good at taking advice reversely as well from experts. But, uh, but I think the design process is something that happens on a more immaterial level a little bit earlier. And that's where things are becoming a lot more exciting. I think that's very obvious, and it's always fascinating me, to me how um, how wide open um, the designs are from from your studio, and yet you can still see the DNA in each and every building um, that that comes out of the studio. It's it's, it's fascinating. Okay, Christos, in every episode of Design Pod, we're going to do a quick fire round, and I feel as if it's a good time to do that now. So, <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. So, describe yourself in a hashtag. Hashtag driven. <laughs> Great. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you have ever received? And who is it from? Well, this is an interesting one. I, the, the best piece of advice was the mind solves problems better when it's not thinking. That's great. And who said that? My dad. Oh, brilliant. Um, okay, so what has been the most challenging project you've worked on to date? Well, I found it difficult to answer this question. I find it difficult to answer this question because they're all... All projects have been uh, challenging without exception. Um, and I always say that it is not us making the projects, but the projects are making us. And therefore, the challenge is always with ourselves. And this challenge is ongoing. So I, I think this is, this is the reality of the situation. And hmm. um, what was your first job? I was a draftsman for my dad's studio. Ah, um, if you were able to switch positions for a day with any other member of your team, who would that be? Oh, don't make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I think I would love to be a model maker again and sit on the computer for a whole day and enjoy the, the, the process of starting out something up from scratch and, and, and seeing it and rendering it and doing that again. I what you wish for sitting on the computer today. We're in a lockdown. I know. <laughs> and where's, where's next on your travel bucket list? Well, um, to be honest, I think it's California. Definitely California. And why is that? Sunshine, the, the ocean. I think I want to see the people. I want to drive through the, uh, uh, you know, the, the West Coast Highway. A uh, lot of things I want to do, so you know, go visit the movie industry, see what's happening there. 
Mm, new building out there potentially maybe maybe we'll see <laughs> um so so christos one of the projects that that really put you on our radar recently um was, was the opus um the the me dubai um obviously it's that project that that really um led to you becoming architect of the year last year at the Britlist Awards um it's an architectural marvel we had a journalist there recently to review it um which is on the hotel designs website and it's known as the legacy project is that right it is yes it and is. is that because um it was the last building that Zaha Hadid herself worked on no I think it's because for me um it is because it's one of the buildings that best describes how Zaha's world operated Amazing. I think as a, it's a model, a model of of that kind of, and that's what I what I try to capture always the the kind of the idea that there is opposites at play, uh, you know, and how uh, you know the uh, what the interesting thing about that project I always found was that it always blends the pragmatic and the imaginative together, mm. and that's what Zaha always liked. That was its strength, but in doing so, I think you you recognize and you see it. It's very evident. Uh, in the building that um, the two opposites, the emptiness and the solidity of the, of the project, they, they kind of potentially can cancel each other out, but they don't. And, and the building form is created just because they find a balance where these kind of almost uh, catastrophic to each other opposites find a, find a, a kind of a, an interesting balance that, that uh, creates this form that is so interesting in so many ways. For, for those listeners that haven't quite seen it, obviously that's the difficulty with the podcast. You can't see the project. Can you just explain to us um, the, the building and, and maybe just, just the brief as to what was presented to you? Yes, of course. I think in terms of image, the building is uh, curated as a cube um, that is melted on the inside. So it has a big hole in the middle that, that uh, generates a kind of a very freeform surface um, and this is the the kind of the binary construct between the the solid building and the and the and the void uh, freeform void um, that makes it so iconic at the same time um, I think uh, it's interesting to observe that within this compositional setup um, there is a, a three-story bridge that connects one side of the building with the other and that is a living bridge so we have in their uh, serviced apartments um, that are overlooking the whole of that of that uh, hole in in the middle of the building, but also um, the building itself, exactly because of this void, allows the visitor to be able to see it all the way through um, through an internal and an external atrium when it stands in the middle of the building on the on the ground floor in the lobby of the hotel. And it's the, the only hotel in the world that has both its interiors and exteriors designed by <clears throat> Zaha Hadid Architects. Why now to, to make that, that big statement? Well, I think um, it was a long time coming. And, and it was also one of our ambitions as a company to create this kind of total artwork which is a notion, it's not a very new notion, but it's a notion that started in, in, in the modernist movement. Um, and I think the idea that um, the same designer 
works, the exterior and the interior is a very different proposition than being hired to develop a shell and core building. You know, um, I think when you when you have to deal with the interior, not only as an interior designer, but also as an architect, I think you begin to to trace those transitions that someone goes through from the outside of the building to the inside of the building and then upstairs and then going into the room and then going through the sleeping area into the bathroom, for example, in the wash zones. Um, it becomes a journey. So the idea of journeying through the building was was the carrying idea here, you know, and in a way, um, in a way, that's what's interesting about it because you don't feel the same in all the different places. So it's almost like, um, uh, you know, you dive and you immerse yourself into this building, and every territory, every region of the building is a different kind of experience and a different situation. It's a series of fluidly interconnected rooms without harsh you know, uh, boundaries and subdivisions. And uh, rule, rule 101 of designing a hotel is to inject sense of place, but designing in, an, in a location like Dubai is very challenging because it's, it's very new. Um, what, how did you deal with that? And there's, there doesn't seem to me that there's a clear sense of place that, of it being Dubai, but for me, that's kind of its beauty because it's mm. all celebrating the, the fluid form um, and, and the possibilities of, of architecture and taking it beyond that. Um, was it challenging designing in a place where it's just a statement hotels and buildings all over the place? <laughs> well, look, uh, back in, in 2005, 2007, when uh, we started designing this project, uh, Dubai was a very different place. Um, you know, there was no business bay. There were not so many towers, not so many iconic buildings. So when I first visited the, the site uh, with one of my colleagues, all we had in our hands was uh, a Google Earth uh, 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 interface on our iPad, a 2G connection, and everything was desert. Not even a single fence to say, this is your site. So doing something, and, you know, of course, uh, it took a lot of faith to get on with this project because you had to be able to do what I, what I spoke in my lecture sometimes, to transit between imagination to reality. And, and the two worlds are obviously not the same. They, they, they obey different rules, but you can transit from one to the other. And it's not just a case of mind over matter. It's also, it's also a case of learning how each one of these two media works. You know, it's like living in air and then suddenly jumping and diving into water. There's two different realities that you have to, you have to adjust to. But, um, you know, when it came to Dubai and, and thinking about the city, of course, the idea of context in its broader sense, not what's, who's your neighbor, what is that building going to be, what is the color of the ground or, or the sky, but actually thinking about the, the idea that you have such a, a powerful vision to create a city in the middle of the desert, and then to also think about what the components of that city are going to be, was, was what I found very um, enthusing. And, um, and uh, in a way, the, the iconicity of the form stems from the fact that it is a composition in its own self. You know, so you can read the object, you can see it, and it relates to 
landmarks like the Burj Khalifa. It it relates to particular other other monuments in the that exist that we knew would exist back then. But in in essence, it's uh, it stands in its own right, and I think that's that's what made it so so powerful. We never expected, by the way, that the municipality of Dubai would have emptied the whole area around the building and just put it right in the middle of of uh, of, a, of a number of high-rise buildings and give it space. But I think what they've done works very well because it just puts it almost like a sculpture, uh, an urban sculpture in the middle of the of the business bay. Absolutely. And, you know, within this project, as well as um, many other, if not all of um, the, the uh, work that comes out of the studio, there's, there's a lack of perpendicular um, surfaces and angles, and it's very irregular, which is it's beautiful. And as you said, it very much creates this art form, but somewhat of a nightmare for interior designers um, when they're collaborating with you. Obviously not in this project, but in previous mm-hmm. ones. How do you manage that relationship and how, how do you sort of get through those challenges with the designers? Well, <laughs> or the artists that that bring artworks or in artists. our museums, or or anybody. Well, I think I think the uh, you know we are we're now learning how to to live in spaces that are more fluid, and 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 you know, architecture was was a little bit more restricting in the past, and now I think we are learning that we can be more free, more directional, more you know choreographing our movements in spaces, and I think this is what people are being a little bit cautious about. Um, In the particular case of the Melia Hotel, we were the interior designers and we've really went to extreme lengths to be able to detail every little part of the building. So I'm sitting here in the office and I still have samples, leftovers of very kind of unique propositions, plexiglass sculptures and, uh, you know, images that we used material samples. I have 10 cupboards here full of full of material samples research that we've done when we were um, when we were researching the project and we've we've done a lot of a lot of testing, a lot of trying out um, so that we are able to finish the building and decorate the building in such a way that it would be fitting to itself in a way. So we operated um, in two ways, we had two themes in the in the design of the hotel rooms. One was the uh, midnight desert, that included kind of dark beigey colors and also very deep blues, and and also the aurora theme, which was when the the sun is beginning to come up out of the desert, where the beiges were a little bit more uh, light, but also you had uh, almost like a spectral. Uh, diffusion of colors like uh, uh, reds and oranges and greens and and blues. So the combination of these two types of uh, colors um, is a little bit unsettling. And they are not necessarily the kind of thing that you would immediately consider putting together these colors. But I think that the point was that uh, in working with those ideas, we've learned how to create harmony in what is not necessarily immediately fitting and sometimes goes against your intuition. But I think we also wanted to give a sense of surreal kind of presence where reality is not exactly as you would expect it. Mm-hmm. So the bed is a little bit pulled on one side and it's an asymmetrical bed. The mattress is depressed into 
the frame, the, the bed then extends all the way against the wall. And rather than having a, a vertical backrest, we have an inclined backrest. Um, there is lighting where you don't expect it. And then going into the bathroom uh, and the wash zones, you see a whole set of specially designed, uh, let's say, uh, uh, feedings like the bathtubs, the wash basins, the, the shelving, the mirrors, the, the shower uh, components, all designed uh, from, from, this, uh, from, this, uh, from this practice together with a company called Porcelanosa, Nokian from Spain, who, uh, you know, supported us very much in this task, but allowed the whole experience of, of the room to be something unique. And of course, I think there is a, about 50% of the rooms are different than others. So we have some that are the same, but uh, a lot of them are also different. So we worked in each room uh, individually and uniquely to be able to to uh, quote unquote dress them up properly. I don't know if you know this, but we're, when we reviewed the hotel, we actually <laughs> asked the furniture designer to review it. So he was mm -hmm. the, the reviewer and he was um, impressed by the, the attention to detail. So things like the sockets are, are hidden under the bed and they're you know, away from the eye. So you don't really lose that, that, um, that art form in the rooms. Um, yes. It's, it's very, very impressive. One area that um, I really want to focus on is, is collaboration because um, uh, Zaha Hadid Architects and Zaha Hadid Design are two separate brands but fall under the same umbrella. And I'm very aware that Zaha Hadid Design has their collaborations with, with many other sort of fashion brands, for example. How mm -hmm. has that allowed you as an architect to, to think wider um, and to really break boundaries in, in design and architecture? Well, I think the collaboration with uh, with Zaha Design is always very uh, very exciting. Um, I think both Woody and Maha, uh, who are leading the company, are brilliant people, and I've known them both for a long time. So they are friends more than colleagues and more than another brand. I think they uh, what they do is, of course, they work on a different a set of problems and a different scale. So the way they, they approach the issue of design is, is slightly different. We, in Zahadid Architects, we still try to respond to architectural issues. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I think, I I think there is... Yeah. I would say that, um, so, so I, I used to work in, in PR for a brand called Odlo <clears throat> and, uh -huh. um, and Zaha Hadid Design worked with Odlo to create the first sort of seamless um, undergarment for, for sportswear. Um, and there's definitely a link within architecture and, and the design in that respect and the, the technology and the research. Um, because in that particular example, the, the seamlessness was definitely taken from the architecture projects that were, that have been, you know, uh, that are known. No, there is. You're absolutely right. What I what I wanted to 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 say earlier is that there are differences in 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 the way uh, the two brands look at things, and I think that's a good thing. But I think more importantly, there is a dialogue, and there is a there is a kind of a an integration. I think that's what's interesting about it. You know, mm. it's it's like the the building itself, the solid and the void. They are in a dialectical uh, relationship with each other, and I think. Um, I think you will see that there is a lot of shared kind of uh, uh, content, um, you know, that is that is being developed. And in fact, when we were working on the project together, um, there there was also a lot of a lot of development and improvement that came from 
from these kinds of conversations as we went through. So we never really distinguished between ourselves, who is who and what is what, but actually each one bringing their own kind of talents into the, onto the table, I think was, was what was quite interesting. Absolutely. And I think it also makes the brand more accessible as well to the outside audience. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Christos, we're, we're very nearly finished and we're running out of time, but um, I will kind of want to know how you're t- taking the Zaha Hadid Architect brand forward from, from here. Um, from sort of pandemic times to, to looking ahead into, into the future? What, what's yes. next? Well, as, as it has always been, the world is in, a, is in a transitional period. It's been for like this for the past 20 years or so. But I think we're beginning to recognize the, the role technology is playing into the way we, we deal with a lot of social functions, um, our work, our commuting, all of these things. I think there are radical changes coming to the world in terms of technology, but there is also very much imminent need to deal with ecological and sustainability issues. Um, What I'm particularly interested in is this idea of the ecological technological habitat, which is a very uh, topical subject, but I think, um, um, you know, I'm gonna spend with with the team here, maybe the next 10 years, uh, trying to figure out how we can be better ecologists and better technologists in our in our dealings through architecture, basically. As a as a practice, I think this uh, one topic is is important. But we of course have uh, a lot of other uh, you know research trends going on. There is um, an engagement now with the virtual reality. There is um, the whole idea of how to uh, project the the previous you know, 20 years experiences into, into, into the future now. Uh, but I think we've got to remain open-ended. I don't, I don't want to see fixed targets. I just want to see wishes and tendencies that will drive us forward rather than obsessing about getting somewhere. And then, you know, obviously, I think that's not a good leadership proposition. Rather, I think we all together as a team need to keep pushing things forward. Just quickly, so that we can get a little insight of what you're working on now, what projects should we expect to be hearing about soon from Zaha Hadid? Yeah. Well, we have lots of lots of exciting things. Uh, we are working on uh, a big um, uh, workplace um, uh, headquarters for uh, a large Russian company in Skolkovo, which is their Silicon Valley type uh, innovation uh, center. Uh, where we're exploring new ways of dealing with office spaces using virtual reality and uh, unusual kind of configurations of, of spaces to make uh, to make the environment more um, uh, more livable and more exciting. We're also uh, designing um, a number of projects in China. Most of our work nowadays is in China, so we're developing. Uh, corporate headquarters, ecological master plans. Uh, We're also working uh, with several companies to develop a number of next generation uh, train stations and aviation uh, projects. So there is is a lot in the works. Exciting times. Well, Christos, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to checking up on all those projects as they go forward. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that was Christos Passas, the director of Zaha Hadid Architects and Architect of the Year last year, who was crowned at the Britlist Awards. 
It's just so enlightening hearing from Christos's perspective on on where architecture is going and uh, and really understanding from from his perspective how to break boundaries and to to take architecture forward to where it is now in order to continuously challenge conventions. Um, I also kind of felt as if we just got a backstage pass into the studio life of Zaha Hadid Architects, which is uh, pretty priceless, really. Um, so if you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and also give us a cheeky five-star rating because that's the only way that we can climb the podcast charts. Harriet and I love delivering this podcast and we would love to continue doing so more and more as, as we progress. Um, our next episode is going to look at everything from a technology perspective. And in order to do so, we're inviting tech expert Jason Bradbury, who is the former presenter of The Gadget Show, to join us in order to understand which tech trends we should be looking at moving forward in interior design and architecture. See you there.